The vaccine was approved by the FDA and is being delivered. The world waits on the approval of Dr. Jill Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ruthless. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Judge Amy Coney Barrett. If Joe Biden wins, Democrats can sack the courts. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Maybe that's a question you should ask China. Anyway, my time's up. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. It's a whole hoax. And you know who's playing into the hoax? People like you and the fake news media. We are born free and we will stay free. <laughs> Smog, you know, it's it's... We've got a lot of scientists working on this. We've got a lot of. She's an expert. She's a doctor. We have to say, Doctor Joe Biden. Doctor, damn it, expert. She's a doctor. Class surgeon. (laughs) Many people are saying she's a doctor. She has gone to a school that has given her a doctorate. So, if I had a nickel every time, some journal called Ben Carson, Ben Carson, not the Honorable Doctor Ben Carson. Let's get into the show. (laughs) All right, so we got an. We got an action-packed show. This is actually one of the biggest shows that we've ever done. We've got two of the most powerful people in politics, and I mean that sincerely, not not like hyperbolically. Yeah. We we have Stephen Law and Dan Constant. They run the two super PACs that are in charge of of running Senate Republicans and House Republican races. We're going to talk to them about 2020. We're going to break some news about next year. And, you know, look, these guys are fantastic. They're American patriots. Yeah. You know, what? Uh, it's a huge deal uh, that we could get Stephen Law on the show. I mean, number one, he doesn't really do interviews. Uh, and I actually have a, a very funny Stephen Law story. So <laughs> true story, folks. So occasionally from time to time, I, I host these uh, secret off the record meetings, New York, Washington, a couple cities around the States. And, uh, I was lucky enough to have Mr. Law accept one of my invites to one of my off-the-record meetings. And the thing is, is uh, I've been a, a tremendous fan of Stephen Law's work for a very long time. The guy is, I mean, he's a renaissance man and, and, and an absolute artist. What he has accomplished uh, for the Republican Party, for the conservative movement, um, with super PACs. And, and the, here's the funny thing is, so he's OG. Uh, he's OG. He, he is I truly mean, an OG. He literally invented it with yeah. Rove back, literally. back in the citizens United sort of like court changing days post uh, McCain Feingold. And so that's the thing is, so, you know, I see him, he, he arrives at the, uh, off the record and, and, you know, I'm so starstruck. I walk up to him. I'm like, Mr. Law, thank you so much for accepting the invite. And I just have to tell you, I've been a tremendous fan of your work for, for such a long time. I'm so grateful for all that you've accomplished. You know, I've, I've followed your career very closely. What you accomplished in 2010, um, you know, getting Republicans a super PAC and catching the Democrats flat-footed and helping us get the house, you know, the amount he has accomplished in terms of electing Republicans and furthering conservative ideals, like not a thinker, a doer. Yeah, you know, and I think that's just it, the impact is almost immeasurable, and uh, so I actually said all of this to him, and he still will talk to me, which is amazing. It didn't just think <laughs> I'm just a crazy Starstruck fan. So, 
Thank you so much, Mr. Law, for coming on he's the a, show. He's a good man. He's an OG McConnell guy right back from the beginning. And he's just a, a salt of the earth dude. You're going to love that interview. You're also going to love Dan. Um, Dan doesn't do a lot of interviews. This is a guy who's just like Steven, lays underneath, lets other people sort of steal the headlines, but executes. And, you know, I, I said to him in, in our interview, man, I just, I, I, I appreciate so much your ability to work with others, not steal a spotlight and just execute and win because that's what we need as Republicans. I, yeah. I, I, I could exactly give two right. shits about the rest of these press conferences and this nonsense, this grievous, grievance politics about what everybody else is doing to us. What are we doing to them? Correct. I, you know what? And I love that about, I feel that about these, these two and the, and the super PAC in general is it's, it's not grievance. It's let's put boots on the ground. Let's actually yes. move the needle. Yes. Yes. So you're going to have a, a great, great episode listening to these two people. You know, it, we're, we, we generally just like to make fun of people and laugh. You're going to find some substance in these two interviews. And I think you're really going to like it. Yeah. Absolutely. What? So I mean, laugh, but let's laugh first. Yeah. Amazing work getting them. I am imp- that, you know, I'm, I remain starstruck of Mr. Law. Uh, but let, let's get into the day's news. What do we have? Well, so, so listen, we are watching vaccines walk out the door. Yes. We are, we are, our long nightmare, courtesy of Mr. Trump and our science community is coming to an end. You know, that's the thing is it's incredible to think that President Trump could defeat COVID faster than he defeated ISIS. <laughs> that is amazing. Amazing. The guy, I mean, he doesn't really waste time. There's a problem. He's going to kill it. The Pfizer vaccine is the Moab. Basically. There it is. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean, it, the, the timetable is, you know, you heard for so long, you had journalists saying, you had Acosta who was tweeting, wow, all the experts are saying, there's no way we can get a vaccine this year. President Trump is pushing fake news. Folks, we all see now who the real fake news was. So we got us telling you that President Trump would fail. This is an important point, Smug, because I I think we got to play audio. This is just a run of the mill. We're not picking on CBS because CBS was was basically the same as every other, but it was just a a clip that was circulating by our boy Steve Guest today um, about what the CBS Evening News said this spring about the availability of a vaccine at the end of the year. Go. Paula Reed is going to lead off our coverage tonight at the White House. Paula. Nora, this vaccine operation is the latest in a series of White House efforts to combat coronavirus. But previous projects like the testing initiative have stalled or failed to live up to what was promised. Even the president's own medical experts say that having a vaccine ready to go by the end of the year is possible, but not likely. So, I mean, there you go. Here's the thing. What we have come to learn about the way that the media operates is that everything in the Trump era was about making sure that nobody had trust or faith in the Trump administration. It didn't matter whether or not it was his election in 2016, whether it was the staffing of his administration, whether it was the policies that came out of the administration, or ultimately about the availability of a goddamn vaccine. Or, I mean, or, or I might add, <laughs> the efficacy 
of the vaccine itself. That is, and you know, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up is it is incredibly dangerous. And the, the media did not hold these Dems accountable like Kamala Harris, who are like, I would be, you know, I'd have second thoughts about taking a vaccine if it's released under President Trump. That's anti-vax. That's anti-science, not listening to the experts. And that's dangerous and it could cost lives. Like the, the, the media for, you can't even get me started. I have so much to say on the topic. <laughs> Number one, the fact that they were saying that Trump should be held accountable because he's saying he's going to get a vaccine done in a year when all the experts are saying that would be a miracle. We have the vaccine. You know, it, it's so strange how during election season, they're doing everything they can to gaslight the American public into, oh, Trump can't get a vaccine done, which he ended up doing after election day. Oh, uh, this Hunter Biden information is Russian, Russian disinformation, which now we're finding out he's getting investigated and it was all true. Like the media needs to be held accountable for everything they did to push disinformation during the election season. It's why you need to listen to Ruthless, honestly, because it, the rest of this is just bullshit. I mean, they pick and choose about what it is that they actually try to emphasize and what it is that they say is actually true. I mean, the Hunter Biden thing is a perfect example where they're all just now sort of like, by the way, let's just rewrite. The only reason we're talking about the Hunter Biden story is because Hunter Biden released a fucking statement on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It took that. It took that. If he didn't release a statement with his own name, this would still be a Russian disinformation campaign. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. incredible. So, so like back this back up to the vaccine. We are now talking about unbelievable. I have reporters calling me at 630 at night. That's <laughs> outrageous. Um, anyway, the, 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 the vaccine was said by the vice presidential elect candidate that she wouldn't take it. Yeah. She wouldn't take it. We are now administering it to healthcare professionals in major cities across this country. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, President Trump. Where is the accountability? Yeah, you know, anyone who said the vaccine wouldn't be ready this year and undermined public faith in vaccines shouldn't be allowed to get one. They shouldn't. They should. In fact, they should. Yeah, no, actually. Yeah, sorry, Kamala. You, you did all you could to push your anti-vax agenda. You don't get it. And I'll just say it on a personal note, I would take the vaccine to my eyeball. Like, I, I am doing everything I can, folks. If you have a hookup, let me know. I want as many vaccines as possible. I'll I want, take I want, What is it? Who, who all has it? There's like I'll three Pfizer. I'll take Moderna. I want them all. I'll Give take Moderna Pfizer. In my left arm. I'll take the Pfizer in the right arm. I'll, I'll go wherever you want to administer it, however, yeah. whatever fashion. If I have to sit in a sweat lodge, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm for it. Uh, it's just infuriating to think about. So you have, you know, a great example is folks have been pulling up all of the media attacking President Trump saying, oh, he's a liar. There will be no vaccine in 2020. You had a fact check that NBC News put out on May 15th saying, fact check, a coronavirus could come this year, President Trump says. Experts say he needs a miracle to be right. Number one, a miracle. that's a fact check. Uh, so it's completely incorrect, folks. We have a vaccine being administered today, literally today. Number it two tells you what a fact check is, by the way. Exactly, they, they're not actual fact checks. They are they are quote unquote experts that they find to validate a narrative they've already established. Bingo. 
That's all it is. That's all it is. Is it's just furthering their own narrative. And they decided to, you know, under the guise of a fact check. And you know what? They should have known better because if one thing we've learned about four years of President Trump is that he makes miracles happen. I mean, we have, I mean, he's ended like all the wars. We have more peace deals than we know what to do with. It's like at this point, it's, it's become like, oh, you know, another country announces a, a, a peace agreement uh, thanks to the Trump administration. It's like, oh, well, it must be a Tuesday, you know? Like that's where we are. We had previous administrations that start wars and Obama's just like drone striking every wedding he can in the Middle East. And meanwhile, we have like world peace under President Trump. It's incredible. The man really does make miracles happen. Don't worry. You're going to get your drone strikes back. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's so worrying to me, you know, especially when it comes to handling the virus. Like, number one, you got Kamala who is trying to undermine faith in vaccines. Number two, I mean, the folks that they're turning the keys over to. Like, we got... Um, Let's play that clip from from Klain, who has been announced as uh, Biden's chief of staff. Oh, it's just unbelievable. Let's play it. Uh, I just had a couple things. I mean, I I was in the White House in 2009, 2010. I was working for Vice President Biden. I wasn't involved directly in the H1N1 response, but I I lived through it as a White House staffer. And what I will say about it is uh, a bunch of really talented, really great people working on it, and we did every possible thing wrong. And... It's, you know, 60 million Americans got H1N1 uh, in that period of time. And it's just purely a fortuity that this isn't one of the great mass casualty events in American history. Had nothing to do with us doing anything right. Just had to do with luck. Uh, And so if anyone thinks that this can't happen again, uh, they don't have to go back to 1918. They just have to go back to 2009, 2010. Imagine a virus with a different lethality. And you can just um, do the math on that. Yeah, so that's who we're turning the keys over to, folks. Uh, people who have no, who had no idea what they were doing during swine flu. That's, you know, really, that feels great. I mean, this is a guy, I think, I mean, I can only presume that he believed he was done with government service forever (laughs) when he said that. (laughs) He's like, I can be honest now, folks. Right. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, let me tell you, we screwed that up so bad. I can't believe people lived. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. So, but this is, this is the guy who's going to come out and, and mark my words, mark my words, by March 1, they will talk about how Joe Biden administered this vaccine. They will talk, Ron mm-hmm. Klain, the guy that you just heard, talking about how the only pandemic that they dealt with, they screwed up beyond belief, but thank God it didn't kill people because it wasn't all that terrible. That guy will try to convince America that what the Biden administration did was vaccinate America. It's infuriating because of all the work that this administration did and getting the vaccine done, you know, Operation Lightspeed, and the entire time the journals were fighting them on it. The Democrats were saying they wouldn't take the vaccine. And, you know, still, despite all that, President Trump remained laser focused. And here's the thing, folks, the end of COVID is near. I mean, this, this vaccine shows us that within a few months, we're going to be in a much better place than we are now. America is going to win. I think, Smug, I think we should, we haven't even talked about this, but I, I think when we get to the, to the post-COVID world, I think we should start doing like a ruthless world tour. Yeah, I'm for it. Like, look at all the world peace that President Trump has brought about. It's, like, a, I, it's really I something. We need, to, we need to take this to stage, live stage shows. 
where everybody yeah. shows up and we just and we just do like a big party. I'm for it. I, you know, I am 100% for that. I'm all for it. We'll go to politically relevant uh, places at the time and we'll just blow it out. I mean, I, count me in. It's, it's, it's really something is, just fathoming what the post-COVID, or the post-COVID world is going to be like. You've got hardest hit, you know, it's Gavin Newsom's dinner reservation plans. And, <laughs> and these poor, poor Dem governors who've been made into like many celebrities and who've been enjoying absolute powers like these kings and queens, you know, they're the only ones not really celebrating the release of the vaccine. So you can understand why well, they're not celebrating at all. They're it. not celebrating at all smug no. because the, the, the reality is, is their worldview fits neatly within a COVID environment. Totally. Yeah. You know, they're like, just absolute grab on power. They, their view is that they're going to be able to tell you where to work, how to work, how much you get paid. That's the point. Whether you can go outside of your house, whether you can eat dinner one way or another, where you, whether you can associate with other people, how many people you can associate with. Yeah. And then ultimately for your trouble, they're going to send you a check for whatever it is that they think you're worth every month. Like yeah. this is a perfect, perfect liberal democratic world. COVID shouldn't stop ever for these guys. This is that, what they want. This is what they've always wanted. This is what they want. It's the and live dream. Want, it's it's everyone, you know, people are dependent on the government and churches are closed. It's like, wow, we've been trying to have this happen for so long. It is not hyperbolic. That is reality. This yeah. is very comfortable for them. If you've wondered why it is that democratic governors are, are hitting their notes during COVID, they feel very comfortable messaging in front of cameras about people locked in, mm -hmm. destroying their livelihoods, shutting destroying down private business. enterprise and small business owners. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you wonder why it is that it comes so naturally, listen to what they say ordinarily. You know, they're going to have to start ending their executive orders by the springtime. It's going to be a reality check They're You know, they're going to realize that they are not like, you know, little emperors of their fiefdoms. It's going to be something, you know, a great example right now is in New York, you've got uh, Governor Cuomo, who this guy was literally given an Emmy for COVID response and was on CNN with his brother playing with like a giant Q-tip talking about how great a job he's done when the guy was, was putting COVID cases in senior centers and killing everybody, Kill, the amount of blood on his hands from from making the decision to send COVID people, forcing these senior centers to take COVID patients and ending up in just so many deaths of people. It's, this guy was turned into a hero by the media and what's happening, he even wrote a book trying to spike the football on, I've done such a great job of being a governor and, and I, I've cured COVID in New York. Well, now he's having to, he's now closing all indoor dining restaurants because it's, you know, they're dealing with cases. It's all performance art. It's all performance art. Like if you wonder why it is, if you're a reasonable conservative and you're looking at like, you know, some of the insane stuff you're seeing on the right about the electoral college and everything else. And you're like, you know, listen, I'm not totally comfortable with that. The reason for that, the reason people are willing to embrace insanity on the right is that the mainstream media and politicians like Andrew Cuomo convince people a narrative like that he is a hero of covid it's absolute gaslighting it, it, that is gaslighting it, it i would believe anything mm -hmm. literally anything to the point where this guy receives emmys he receives yeah. awards 
he writes a book saying, here's how to do the COVID response when he has so much responsibility and culpability for the amount of seniors who died in the state of New York. There's not a single American walking this country who did less Mm -hmm. to protect his people than Cuomo. Yeah. And and that the media is responsible, I'd say as culpable as Cuomo by turning him into some sort of like a national hero when he just completely screwed up COVID response. And And now restaurants are closing again. There was this statistic, you know, uh, of all people, Bill de Blasio brought it up when he was asked about his response to Governor Cuomo ending indoor dining is, you know, he he brought up in passing that 100,000 jobs were restored as a result of indoor dining in the city of New York being reopened. And, and those folks are gone. You know, those jobs, they don't care. He you doesn't know, give a shit. I mean, does not care. He, they, they don't care. And it's not like, let's separate this. This isn't, this isn't about whether or not COVID is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I am not a COVID, COVID denier. Yeah, we all know, I know COVID's dangerous. I, I know it's dangerous. I know what it can do to my parents, mm-hmm. right? I, I know that my infant child is in unique danger. That is the reason why I haven't left the goddamn house yep. in eight months because I, I still associate with these folks. I know the danger. I don't want to suscep- make them susceptible to my own actions. You know who else does that? 330 million Americans. Mm-hmm. I don't need Mario Cuomo, or whatever the hell, Cuomo, Governor this Cuomo. One of them. His dad is probably the only good Cuomo. <laughs> Gave a good speech anyway. But, but I don't need the Cuomos telling me that I am or am not able to do certain activities. I understand the risks. After eight months, we all understand the risks. And I've said it before. It just really bothers me that you see what these outcomes have been from, from the decision-making process where you have Amazon and, and, and Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, are, are making more money than know what to do with, while small business owners are losing everything they've worked for. I totally. mean, you know, it's- Do you ever think about, you, you think about the fact that like you can't get a washer and dryer because every rich person in America is renovating their home and, and, and adding new appliances and doing all of these things. But and part of the reason why you can't get the washer and dryer is because the people who actually create the washer and dryer are unemployed. That's so disturbing. You look at what, oh, and I mean, this has been so devastating to Americans. You look at not loss of job, loss of income. You've got depression rates skyrocketing. You've got suicide numbers going up. It's just, you know. The, These guys are trying to figure out how to give you an allowance, by the way. That's, that is, that's the plan. That is the plan. Answer. We're going to destroy your business. We're not going to allow you to try to get creative to figure out different ways to safely satisfy your customers. What we're going to do is give you a $1,200 check, check, pat you on the head, and say, hey, congrats, You're, uh, the benevolent dictators have given you a, a little something for your trouble. I mean, it's just so bothersome how these damn governors and just this messaging was given of just like, you know, listen to the experts. Uh, you know, first they're going to tell you not to wear a mask. Now they're going to tell you to wear a mask, which is just put their credibility in shambles. And, you know, folks forget. So when you were told to flatten the curve, the thing is, you know, that curve, the idea is flattening it to make it manageable 
for hospital cases. That's it's hospitalization That's right. cases, right, folks? You have the same number. The area under the curve doesn't change when you flatten it. It's the same number of COVID cases. It's just not all at once peaking and surging that it becomes like Italy where you know, folks were dying in the hallways in hospitals because the hospitals could not put up with that. It's intentional, it's intentional stupidity to try to, con, to try to conflate two issues, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when, when, even with Fauci at the, at the initial explanation for what we were trying to accomplish is saying, I'm not going to tell you that fewer Americans are going to be infected. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is elongating the number of inf- infections to the point where we don't overrun our hospitals and have a mortality rate, the likes of which you saw in Italy. And that's, you know, I bring this up because there's a great point brought up by so many of these New York restaurant owners saying that, okay, why are you shutting down indoor dining in New York when, in New York City, when in upstate, the hospitalization rate is double what it is? Because the whole thing, folks, was flatten the curve, flatten the curve, because the idea is not to overrun the hospitals, but there, there's no thoughts. And, uh, and upstate's free, right? Up, upstate, uh, yep, everybody's totally. operating. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, first of all, I know you're from New York, but I hate it. Um, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I don't have any problem douching all over it. But, but the politics of the city are just absolutely incredible to me. It's I insane. cannot believe there is an entrepreneurial man or woman in New York City right now that isn't looking around and saying, I got to get the hell out of this. Yeah, place. Florida's looking really nice. It's the same way, you know, a lot of folks in San Francisco, like Elon Musk, he's just the latest case. You know, they're, they're going Oracle. to Texas. And Oracle. They Oracle just, just moved their HQ over to Austin. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a, a stampede of places out of these liberal jurisdictions because it's not about trying to keep you safe from COVID. Mm-hmm. It's about control. control. Yes, it over is. when, how, and whether you do business. And, and ultimately, like, the conversation just is, is completely fucked. Because every time, every time a, a business owner says, all right, so I'm going to figure out a way to get, get around COVID. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how to deliver a food. I'm going to deliver out, uh, you know, figure out how to, how to safely operate my business. Mm-hmm. Guys like Cuomo and de Blasio and the rest of them or Gavin Newsom ends up completely clamping down, eliminating their ability to make a living for themselves while hanging out at French Laundry. Yeah. That's, you know, the hypocrisy is just unbelievable that you get from these people. Unbelievable. Well, I, listen, that was, that was even better than I, I know we were going to talk about it a little bit. but <laughs> I had to get it off my chest, man. I had to get it off my chest. So this one, this next, this next thing is a, a personal hobby horse. We can roll through it fairly quickly. But I, I saw a Hillary Clinton tweet today. Um, let me just read her tweet. I believe we should abolish the electoral college and send our president <laughs> and select our president by the winner of the popular vote, same as every other office. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. It's really something. It's really something. So, so like we've talked frequently about how Democrats are willing to, to literally destroy every institution in America yeah. in order to retain power, yeah. right? But in this case, they, they actually may have won uh, by, the, by the, the constitutionally allotted uh, selection of a president, and they still want to abolish it. Mm-hmm. And, and this woman in particular drives me crazy <laughs> because 
what she's what she say she knows she's smart enough right i mean like look i hate hillary clinton as much as the next guy but she's smart enough to know that eliminating the electoral college would mean a civil war yeah. in the united states terrible idea right it'd be like getting rid of the senate yeah it it, it, it means it doesn't make any sense it means basically anywhere in the midwest the you know anywhere in the the mountain west it doesn't matter what you think you're going to be ruled by New York, San Francisco, LA. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, 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 so automatically you have a huge, like, why are we a union type question? Correct. She's smart enough to know that. What it means, and she's an elector, by the way, she's, she's participating in this process. That's pretty funny. That's total Hillary right there. <laughs> yeah. So she's participating. Democracy in is part and of the brand. As she says this. But, but the reason that she's doing it, quite obviously, is to continue processing what happened in 2016. Right? Like, there's no other reason for her to say it. She's so good. She's too smart. To, she knows that it would destroy our country, but she's got to say it because she has to justify the fact that she got her ass kicked by Donald it's, Trump. Yeah, and this is, this is a, an absolute true story. It's like, whenever I'm like down or discouraged or whenever i need a happy thought everyone this is a great mental exercise is think about hillary clinton she spends her entire life singularly focused on one thing she puts up with a husband who will just like <laughs> drop his pants for anyone you know like allegedly she puts up with a, a marriage like that you know she the amount of hell because she's like, at the end of the day, Hillary, we're going to be president. Okay, we're going to go. We're going to be president. So just keep on trucking, Hillary. <laughs> and then, then Donald Trump shows up and just ruins her life. It's the and best. It makes me so happy. To think couldn't it. Happen. It couldn't Donald be Trump shows up. There's of all people. There's literally <laughs> nobody better to walk in and desk swipe, table swipe, tip just over the chairs. Destroys her life, dude. Like ever since she first joined student council, she was like, I'm going to be president. And then like Donald Trump's like, nope. He's like, fake news. It just, it brings me such joy, that thought. You're right. And it's and like, you still see it today. He continues driving her nuts. She will never recover. She oh. will never, ever recover from that. She never will. But one thing, so one thing I didn't anticipate, because I jumped on this Hillary Thing, and I was like, boy, is this the dumbest thing in the world and all kinds of other, other stuff. And my timeline on, tw on Twitter just immediately populated with every liberal in the country just fucking shouting me down about how wrong I am about the national popular vote. And I didn't realize that they consolidated so quickly yeah. around a, a plan to eliminate our country. So, so like I started reading some of it and Listen, I think our listeners need the talkers on this smug because absolutely because you know like national popular vote sort of sounds good like you know it's democracy and you get fifty one percent you win so but there are a few reasons why it doesn't make any sense in the world. One is the founding of our country. Our our, our framers did an excellent job at getting everybody's buy in on staying together as a union. Right, we had the notable civil war fought over an incredibly important disagreement over slavery and our ability to sort of reconstitute a union after we process that 
but, but really we have mutual interests mm-hmm. as a country. And every state feels as though it has representation in the direction of our union. Yep. If 40 states in our union ultimately find out that they have absolute subservience to New York, San Francisco, LA, and a, cu- a couple other liberal populist uh, centers, which ultimately are defunding the police and destroying their own places where they live. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be a part of it. Like, think about it, folks. You've got uh, businesses fleeing from New York and San Francisco because of the policies they have in place there. But that would be everywhere without an electoral college. It would be everywhere. So, so like, and then you hear back from libs who are like, yeah, but like 80, 80% of the GDP comes from these. I mean, Biden won 17, 17% of the counties in America. Correct. Less than 20% of the counties in America, Biden won and won the presidency. And so, but libs, their, their rejoinder to that is, yeah, but like 70% of the GDP comes from there. No, 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 assholes. No, 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 no. You may control the dollars because you're sitting at the bank and you have the processing capability of making transactions, but you're not growing the goddamn corn. They're not manufacturing it. They're not putting food on the table. You're and not the- manufacturing a Mm-mm. thing. And- and the funny thing is, and, and those GDP numbers are changing. You see companies like Oracle are moving their HQ. You're seeing folks are leaving uh, these cities because of their policies. We've so, had a 30-year consolidation into urban areas largely because it's been a nice place to live. And what we've seen over the last six months is that it's an unsafe place to live. Mm-hmm. Under liberal governance, it is an unsafe place to live. The policies are are not compatible with a growing economic climate. And so this will change. This, this, this is, but the most important part, when you look at stuff like the Electoral College, oh yeah, it's really, really funny to shit all over North Dakota, right? Mm-hmm. While it's fueling the nation, right? The Bakken oil shale. You, you can fill up your car for two bucks and 80 cents, but you're going to shit all over the 30,000 people that are end up Putting that in your gas tank? That's the thing. Is you know, they the liberals only see the country as uh, th- their elite coastal cities and they demean and look down upon the flyover states that put the food that they eat on the table. It's just it's just absolutely incredible and infuriating. The last point on the electoral college. If you are a lib, which I don't suspect there's a ton of listeners who are, but if you are a lib. <laughs> and you are concerned about the amount of post-election litigation happening right now, consider the fact that it is happening in four states, less than 10 counties, probably less than 25 precincts across this country. If you eliminated the electoral college, the only thing that would matter is the end total vote. So you would sue every single precinct, every single county, every single state, everywhere in this country in order to try to find abnormalities on an election-by-election basis. It would mean that, that the county in Idaho 
that has 7,000 votes would be just as important as the precinct in New York City or Milwaukee in this case, or, or Atlanta in this case, because it's all about gross total. It has nothing to do with the state. Who'd have thought liberals didn't think things through? God, they're just idiots. I mean, they're so effing dumb. It is, it's, it's incredible. It's stunning. And, and I, and I, like it, part of me hopes, not this, but part of me hopes that they, they, they're the dog that catches the bus on some things mm-hmm. because the, the amount of problems that they create for themselves would make every single person a conservative. You know, what else is really terrifying is the speed at which the idea goes on the left from the fever swamp to like mainstream left, like the Green New Deal, no electoral college. Like it's, it's gotten really quick, folks. They go from like six months from the extremists to what their senators are saying. Okay, fine. It's, it, 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 it's unbelievable. So anyway, I know we've, I, this, look, this is going to be our world longest episode, but was, these are important topics. These interviews, you're going to love. You're going to love these people. They're serious people. But more importantly, they're like probably the most powerful people uh, that you'll hear. <laughs> and, and, and like, uh, so Stephen Law, let's, let's start with Mr. Law's interview. So he runs the Senate Leadership Fund, a super PAC, which is focused on the Senate. Uh, they've, so what are the buys that they've announced? How much are they spending on ads in Georgia? So I saw there's, there's two ad buys that they announced the first was 70 million dollars which is completely eye-popping and then they announced something else of like 20 million dollars i think suffice to say they're going to be north of 100 million dollars in georgia they are making sure that republicans have a share of voice with democrats who own not only every billionaire in america but also own all of the airwaves all the the thing is like to you know, to understand about these super PACs is so the, the Democrats have NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, you know, those are their super PACs yeah. on the airwaves for 90% of the time. Our side gets to answer with ads during, you know, the advertising time as you've got SLF up there uh, putting up ads to get the truth out there to folks. Yep. Um, yep. 70 and 90. So we got $90 million coming from SLF to help out in the efforts in Georgia. That's, you know, I remember the last time Ossoff ran, the minions trolled him into having to propose to his girlfriend. It's like Stephen Law is going to hit Ossoff so hard, he's going to have to announce his wife is pregnant. It's incredible. <laughs> $90 million. Well, I mean, he, he, now he had to announce his wife at the behest of him. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the next logical step. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, without further ado, a true American patriot and a personal hero, Mr. Stephen Law. Well, welcome. We've got a very important and distinguished gentleman here by the name of Stephen Law. He's the president and CEO of Senate Leadership Fund and American Crossroads and the only guy I know with the stamina and endurance to run the largest super PAC in America every single cycle. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Oh, man. Either stamina or lack of imagination. I'm not sure which. But, uh. <laughs> well, you do a whale of a job. And you're on uh, a pretty good run here. This, this cycle in particular, it felt like every single pundit in America were writing off Senate Republicans every step of the way. And yet somehow you guys managed to set every record you could possibly set for fundraising and everything else. Yeah, it was uh, an unbelievable cycle. I have to admit it, come early 
October, I was starting to believe the pundits, but there were a couple of things I felt we had uh, in our hip pocket. One was the terrain. I felt like we were competing in states that were going to be more inclined to vote Republican, places like Iowa, uh, even North Carolina. <clears throat> and then in addition to that, we had some really good candidates. Uh, you know, anybody who discounts Susan Collins does so at their own risk. And so everybody right. who had written her off uh, made a big mistake. And, and what I think this showed is how the, the pundit class and some of these prognosticators, uh, they, they listen to inside the beltway chatter. Uh, they look at a bunch of polls that, you know, Josh, you and I both know where most of these public polls are complete garbage. And, and they don't think about the internal dynamics of what really decides races, which is quality of candidate, what kind of terrain you're running on, and are the Democratic candidates, or whatever the opposition is, are they really quality? And you know, Chuck Schumer picked a lot of people with no history, no background, no track record, really no experience of running a major statewide race, and a lot of them just ended up coming short at the end. Uh, it's such a good point. Let's, let's pick up that, because I, one of the things that uh, you have the benefit of, of knowing just by virtue of watching politics change here over cycle to cycle and seeing what's different it seems to me, we've spent some time on this program talking about how the pundits basically have just not adapted with the political terrain, right? They're still making analysis based on like a 2004 outlook in politics. And, and I noticed, you know, you've been more critical probably this cycle of, of uh, the media and the punditry than, than normal. And is, is this just, am I right about this? Are they just not adapting? Yeah, I, I think they're kind of out to lunch. I, I, one of the great problems uh, of working and living in Washington, and, and we deal with it ourselves, is you get into this groupthink and everybody self-reinforces and there's also this fear of being wrong. And so you just default to whatever the conventional wisdom is. Mm. And you know, what's changed a lot since 04 is the entire game of politics, you know, from the way that people raise money and on the Democratic side, obviously that's helped them get uh, very competitive with low dollar uh, contributions, but it has also empowered and projected candidates out there who really have no business running races and will mm -hmm. end up losing as a result. And the MJ Hagers of the world uh, can't make it simply on the basis of a slick launch video and then a bunch of active contributions. You're not gonna right. cut through. And yet the mainstream media just looks at, oh, well, these receipts are bigger than these receipts. And so therefore that person must be uh, competitive. And I think the outside game has changed it too. You know, all, all groups like ours and the Democrats uh, have their own, uh, can do an awful lot to either amplify a message uh, or push back on a challenger that only has money as their lead advantage. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like most of these prognosticators, most of these reporters just, just don't know it. They don't think about it. And it certainly doesn't enter their calculation of how they're going to rate these races. Yeah, no, and you guys had to spend, well, how much did you end up raising this cycle? Uh, by the time it's all over, we'll have ended up raising uh, just south of $600 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is almost, you know, three times as much as we've ever raised before in our lives. Uh, I, I assume Democrats have done a, a similar amount. But, uh, yeah, the, the amount of money that we were able to raise and deploy in these races is like nothing I've ever seen before. Well, and there was a huge... Uh, discrepancy, as you mentioned, in the candidate level fundraising this cycle. This has been a problem growing for Republicans. Fortunately, they've begun to address it with things like Win Red. But it, it, more maybe than, than any other cycle, SLF sort of had to stand in that breach between the huge discrepancy of campaign dollars that Democrats had versus 
Republicans. And I, I, there was a couple of states in particular, like North Carolina is one that really stood out to me, where you guys were basically, what, like two-thirds of the spending in, in the entire campaign. Yeah, absolutely. At it, 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 uh, different points in states like Iowa and North Carolina, the, the, can, the campaigns, the Republican campaign spending on TV was about 5% of Whoa. the total amount spent by different groups on the right and the left in their races. They were just a very, very small amount. And in some of these races, particularly North Carolina and Iowa, we were running multiple ads. We were running two full-strength campaigns, sometimes even three, uh, sending different messages. So in some of them, we were actually acting as if we were the candidate, talking about what they were doing as if we, you know, what the candidate might do. And then we were also going after the Democrats. So it was an unusually active year for us where we saw, you know, the candidate just didn't have the resources to, through no fault of their own, uh, but they just didn't have the resources to compete. And if we weren't there in a really muscular way, there was just no way. We, we, we needed to do multiple things. We had to defend our candidate and we had to disqualify the opponent. And it ended up falling on our shoulders in several of these races. Ultimately, that's probably not sustainable, right? I mean, Republicans need to figure out how to get to close to parity on the this is primarily driven by small dollar digital fundraising, right? Yeah. yeah. And you, I, I really uh, give you a lot of credit, uh, Josh, for seeing this early on and for really applying some muscle to the consultant community and others to, to get WinRed going. And as you know, it's not just about technology. In fact, the technology is not terribly complex. It's about changing the ecosystem and the way that low dollar resources are raised in the Republican Party, where you know, donor lists are maintained not for the benefit of the party, not even for the benefit of the candidate in whose name they're raised. <laughs> they're maintained for the benefit of the consultant. Who God, no and uh, that, that, that's, you know, you know, faintly immoral, but also extremely <laughs> unproductive. Uh, and I think if we can move to a model where more and more, just like the Democrats, you've got to hand it to them. Uh, you know, they've built a cooperative, basically. And that's what we need to have, where we've got donors trained uh, and motivated to want to give to low dollar, uh, you know, low dollar contributions to people, and sometimes to a candidate other than the person who's soliciting them. So if they get a solicitation from Leader McConnell, they respond to that solicitation, but he's asking for somebody else like a David Perdue or a Kelly Loeffler. If we can build that, then we'll have gone a long way to equalizing that, as you put, a totally unsustainable financial situation. No kidding. Well, usually this is the part of the cycle, Stephen, where you're wrapping presents and congratulating a team on a job well done. But uh, we've got some overtime in Georgia, which we've covered pretty extensively here on Ruthless. And I, you're smack dab in the middle of it, as always. What's your take on where we're at? Well, first of all, uh, I think the one thing that keeps us going uh, post-November 3rd all the way to January 5th is the fact that it's just so much fun. I mean, you've got one candidate who is an absolutely certifiable nut who believes you can't be a Christian and be a veteran and fight to defend our country. And then you've got another guy we were talking about a little bit earlier. He, you know, he, this guy, I posted at one point, I, I tweeted that, uh, you know, John Ossoff is just an empty Hugo Boss suit. And I got a lot of pushback on that because people were saying this, this guy couldn't possibly fill out a Hugo Boss suit. I mean, it's really more likely a Ted Baker empty suit guy. And so you've got- it's Something with skinny legs, right? Something yeah. with skinny legs. Yeah, right. And you know, those kind of ankle huggers, you know? and. Um, uh, and so it's just, it's, it's just kind of fun. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever run against a candidate whose job was literally preaching to the choir. No filter, 
everybody agrees with everything you said, go ahead, go be as outrageous as you want to be. And everybody's going to think it's great. And um, the, the funnest part is watching in particular Raphael Warnock, one of the two candidates running ads where he's literally saying, I love puppies. <laughs> I love Christmas. <laughs> I love America. Because the reality is there's a whole lot of what he said that is contrary to large chunks of what he's trying to project uh, on TV. Yeah, it's, and, it's actually uh, in question about whether he loves America or yeah, whether he yeah. loves puppies, right? He needs, he needs to actually try to reinforce that because his sermons from the pulpit would indicate he maybe has a uh, more textured view on both of those topics. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he really doesn't like the military. He wants to see it substantially defunded. He really doesn't like police at all. He's, he's uh, backed by every defund the police radical group uh, that's out there. Uh, and, you know, as you know, he, he uh, embraces a prophet, uh, Jeremiah Wright, who, uh, who was extremely negative uh, mm-hmm. about uh, this country. And some of those views, Raphael Warnock himself has espoused. So it, it's been uh, remarkable to run that particular race. And then with Ossoff, it, you know, it's, it's hard to even take the guy seriously. I mean, he's, he's had less experience than, you know, most, uh, you know, Capitol Hill interns I know. And at least <laughs> he don't lie about it. He lied about his, his experience. Uh, but there's, there's a lot there. And in addition to that fact is, you know, the stakes could not be higher. This is not just about two candidates or four candidates or Georgia, it's about the future of the country. Because if, uh, if the Democrats win both of these, then Kamala Harris will be the most powerful person in Washington. Forget oh. about Biden. She will be the most powerful person because she would be in a position uh, to break every tie in the Senate in favor of the Democrats, which means getting rid of the filibuster, creating new states, uh, creating new Supreme Court seats. Uh, and any, any number of other things would really be bad for the country. So it's, we're all in, it's for all the marbles and we're having a good time. So, so we just assume have Mitch McConnell stay in that uh, position, as you know, and, and maybe as our audience doesn't know, is that Stephen is OG Mitch McConnell guy. He, he goes way back, chief of staff all the way, what, 1990? Yeah, 1990, I was his campaign manager. I actually started with him in 1987, which really <laughs> dates me. But yeah, back in the old days, back when all anybody could talk about was how uh, Mitch McConnell was a, a one-term mistake uh, in Kentucky <laughs> and would soon be replaced again by another statewide Democrat. But uh, he certainly proved them wrong year after year and cycle after cycle. Yeah, that was a touch. That was a touch off in terms of predictions. How that goes? Uh, it's, it's, you ran his nineteen ninety. Was was McConnell as sort of stoic and declarative as he was as he is now back then? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, he's uh, as we both know, uh, he's very straightforward. He, he has a lot of confidence in what he says, so he never yells. He never feels like he's got to add emphasis to things. But uh, I remember one time in particular where one of our staff wanted to run, write uh, the first draft of a campaign ad. And so uh, I said, hey, you know, go ahead and knock yourself out. So they, they spent, you know, better part of the day writing it. And he said, do you mind if we talk about it? We can show it to the senator. I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So we, so we send it to him in advance. And we get the, the boss on the phone. And he says, um, we need to take some of the namby-pamby out of this. <laughs> it was meaning insulting anyway. Just like, yeah, where, where's the you know, the put away shot here. Uh, you know, one of my favorite lines, you've heard it often too from the, the, from the leader is that the, the problem with subtlety is that most people don't get it. You know, you've got to <laughs> be clear, got to be straightforward. 
uh, and uh, you, you know, you, 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 you got to put your foot on the throat of the other side and never let up. I mean, you just have to keep at it. And uh, that's why, you know, I find it particularly, and you've seen it too, incumbents get in trouble when they t try to nice their way through yeah. the first three quarters of a race and assume they'll get to the tough stuff at the end. I mean, you've got you've to define your opponent early and often and keep it up. And, uh, and of course, the leaders, we both know also, um, even though he's uh, you know, got an important job in Washington, he's, he's a Kentucky guy. He goes back. He cares about Kentucky. He delivers for Kentucky. People just don't know that here, and so they just assume all they know is what they see of him in front of the sticks. And uh, this is a guy who gets it done for a state, and people know that. And that's part of what's fun about working for him is that uh, he's got these two sides, and the dominant side is actually not here in D.C. at all. No, I know. And, and he's hilarious, too, which is what nobody would ever imagine. I mean, the, the, the caricature that the media makes of McConnell is, is in many ways the polar opposite of what he's like behind closed doors. I mean, he's yeah. mm -hmm. very, very funny. Uh, and, and interestingly, you know, as you just described, basically the same, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, from his first term to now, he's basically the same guy. I think one of the reasons why he's so effective is somewhere along the line, he stopped caring what his critics think, right? And he just executes what he thinks is right. And yeah. he doesn't spend a lot of time wringing his hands about stuff he can't control. Doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, trying to persuade people that he's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just they're they're gonna hate me, so I might as well do do my job. Yeah, and and, and he that's a hundred percent right. And, and he also understands that if you've got a plan, a strategy, uh, and a determination to win, then all that criticism and all that noise just settles to the bottom of the ocean at some point because uh, it, it's results. Uh, that matter. As he also says, you know, uh, uh, winners get to make policy and losers go home. And uh, <laughs> just uh, uh, he, he understands that at the end of the day, it's about putting points on the board and getting good things done. And um, I think that's why he has the respect of his caucus, because you know, he doesn't just, you know, go into those policy lunches, arms flailing, saying, I've got a vote. I wasn't expecting. I can't believe Schumer did something that so <laughs> terrible. You know, I never saw that coming. Uh, you know, he's He's already two or three steps ahead of, uh, of the minority leader. Uh, I often say that Chuck Schumer is, is the master of the single chess move. Yeah. Push something out, so, isn't that great? Ah, there, look, I put you in check and then you take his queen, you know, and that's, uh, uh, but. Um, it's whereas, so good. Yeah. That's a perfect, that's a perfect way of explaining it. With Schumer, and this, work, this is, tells you a lot about modern day politics too. It worked for him really well right up until the point he became Democratic leader in the Senate. It's, it's, he was known in New York for having a podium in the trunk of his car. And every Sunday he'd drive out, take the podium out and get in front of some cameras and talk about basically whatever was on the news and how he was going to fix it. Right. And nobody ever followed up on the fix it part, but he got all the headlines he wanted off mm -hmm. of the podium in the back of the car. And so he tried to do the podium routine as a democratic leader, you know, and, and McConnell just eats his lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chuck Schumer will just sort of say something and, and, and to be, you know, I really actually don't want him to change up because he's been so helpful to us. You know, he's out there saying everything is on the table. <laughs> if we win the majority, we're going to take Georgia. We're going to change America. I mean, I, I want him to keep doing that because it's so good. I mean, he's sort of playing to the, you know, fear of AOC primary uh, right. audience, you know, and uh, just keep it up, Chuck. I mean, we, we need it. Just make sure you speak clearly and articulately so we can put in our next ad. Yeah. He writes your ads. He selects guys like Cal Cunningham, 
I mean, is he on, is he on SLF payroll? This Schumer's got like, basically he's doing half your job. Well, it, it's so helpful. And, and the other thing I liked the other day when he was dumping on, on Cal Cunningham for, as he put it, not me, the guy can't keep the zipper up. He also <laughs> threw shade on Raphael Warnock. He said, oh, well, you know, uh, Stacey Abrams found him. I, I don't know where she, he came from. I assume she did the betting. I mean, what do you know? You know? <laughs> Just but, incredible. It, it's amazing that he has the kind of staying power. You can only lose so many things so many times before people start to get anxious about it. But, but evidently Democrats don't because Nancy Pelosi is still there too. Yeah. Well, I know that's right. Well, that's because you've got a press score that says Nancy Pelosi's at the top of her game. She's winning, winning, winning all the time. All she ever does is win. And uh, I guess people read that and think it's true. Just astounding. I mean, that's a, that's an excellent point. It's every time that she makes any strategic error whatsoever, it's either summarily ignored or, or the precipice of a new novel declaring her brilliance. You know, I mean, God. Well, Stephen, so you've got some challenges remain. Are we going to take these two seats or what? I think we're in a good position to do it. I, I feel like our basic argument is really compelling to the voters who we need to have turn out. Our argument is that uh, if the, the left takes these two seats, uh, as we said, they'll get control of everything and they'll change the face of the country, just like Chuck Schumer predicted. And I think the Democratic war cry is, Let's help old Joe do his job. And I, I just don't think that's got the same gravitas uh, and, um, and, and, uh, and stick-to-itiveness. So, I, you know, we're, we're all out on this. Uh, we're obviously, we've got a lot to do that we are doing to, to you know, define these two Democrat candidates. And then, uh, you know, from what I hear, uh, the, the, the uh, party committees and others have just completely flooded the zone in terms of ground game, making sure that the vote gets turned out. So we're, we're getting people fired up, and I think they're the people who are executing the actual strategy of, of engaging them. So I, I feel like we've got a really great uh, strategy, and, and, uh, and I think we're going to win these two seats. Oh, it's just excellent to hear. We're, we're counting on you. And once again, you know, obviously we thank all of you uh, at SLF for another incredible cycle, helping to make sure that Republicans stay in the majority. Without you, there's just no chance it would have happened. So, so thanks for everything, Stephen. Well, thank you, Josh. It's a great team. I got to say, I'm very fortunate to uh, work with some of the most talented people in politics and, uh, and really hardworking people. I, I, we, we practically broke our team this time around. It was so much more. I mean, it, it's great when you raise three times as much as you've ever raised before, but that means three times as much work. And we didn't become three times as large a team. We basically executed with the same crowd. So, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all going to need a holiday when this is all over. Uh, well, much deserved. Well, before we let you go, for every guest that comes on, we zip three questions past you, uh, Stephen, uh -oh. and, and they're, they're, they cut to the core of every human being. Uh, the first question is, your last meal on earth, what would it be? A last meal on earth would have to be a really good steak dinner. That's yeah. what I'd go for. A really good steak dinner, baked potato, slathered <laughs> butter. I'm not going to worry about cholesterol at that point. And, uh, and no vegetables because I don't eat them anymore. You know? <laughs> Just the meat and the potato. Yeah, that's it. Straight. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, second question. If you weren't in politics, weren't involved at all, what would you be doing with your life? Well, uh, long ago when I was in college, I, I was a music major and I imagined that I was going to be a, a famous 
professional musician. That was my, my dream. And what happened was I realized two things. First of all, that I had to make a living. And then second of all, that there were people in my class who were much more talented than I was, and they weren't going anywhere. So that sort of said what it needed to say about me. So I, I still, uh, still love to play. I've, uh, my wife uh, has allowed me to buy too many uh, musical instruments, which all sit in my basement. Um, but yeah, if I were to drop out of this, I'd be in some really crappy bar somewhere doing uh, backup keyboards for a lounge singer. I can tell I'm you, glad I'm doing this. When we, when we get through COVID, when the vaccinations are delivered to, to Ruthless, which I imagine are any minute now, uh, we're going to assemble a bar and a team and the minions are going to show. And Stephen, you are going to give us that presentation. <laughs> we'll do it. I'm for I'm that. Picturing, I'm picturing, because of all the instruments you just discussed, I'm picturing sort of a one-man band setup, right? With the cymbals on the elbows and the knees. And, <laughs> Completely, yeah. 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 I'll learn harmonica in the meantime. I can just have one of the little harmonica things that I can blow into. <laughs> yeah. It's a date. We're getting this done. All right. The third, the third question. <laughs> what motivates Stephen Law more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? The agony of defeat completely. Um, I really subscribe to that line from Moneyball. You probably remember it, where it's not about you know. It's, he says something on the along the lines of, "You got to hate losing. Got to hate losing more than you love winning." And uh, it's that sense. And and also, you know, um, you know, we're all in this, and I assume the people on the other side feel the same way. We're in this because we we love our country and we love our vision for the country and the idea that so much could change, particularly in a cycle like this where it's. It's sort of a, a or B choice. Um, it, it motivates you to want to make sure you don't lose. And so you do everything you can, obviously legally and in you know, reasonably good taste, uh, <laughs> to not lose. The, the reasonably good taste is, is interpretive, obviously. Yeah, well, and it, it goes down every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, your quality of work product doesn't, Stephen. We really appreciate all you do on behalf of conservatives across the country, Senate Republicans in particular. And, and thank you so much for joining us on Ruthless. Thank you as well, Josh. Thanks for all you do, too. You're just such a critical part of uh, the, the, the party and, and, and the, the, the changes that always have to happen. And, and, uh, and I particularly like what, what, what you and Smug are doing here. And it's, uh, it's an honor to be part of Ruthless. Yeah, you're the man. Okay. Talk to you later. Yeah, so Stephen um, not only is one of the smartest guys that we know is really effective, he's also um, all over it and a, and a hell of a good guy. He's been around forever. This is one of the true godfathers of American politics. Yeah, oh, and what a get, you know, great interview. Uh, you know what we should do is just, so next up, because we have a double header, this is like a supersized special episode of Ruthless. Next up, we got Mr. Dan Cosson. Tell him about it, or tell us about him. So, all right. So, this guy, this guy is equally smart, incredibly good at what he does. More importantly, he's really well respected within Republican circles as somebody who figures out how to cut through the bullshit mm -hmm. and just get it done. Mm -hmm. Right? There's all kinds of egos in in American politics. Democrats have their own inner inner party issues. Republicans do too. You read about the differences. You read about Republicans' problems in the front pages of every newspaper because they love to report that. Mm -hmm. They could not do that with House Republicans this time around. And the reason they couldn't do that is because guys like Dan and women 
like Parker Poling, who we interviewed a month ago, who just wouldn't play the media's game. They put their head down. They figured out how to work together. They executed and they just destroyed everybody's expectations. Yeah. I mean, you know, lots of credits to NRCC and, and CLF, which Dan runs. And, uh, you know, many listeners will know CLF is actually where my assistant, Matthew Foldy, uh, also works. We so, touched on that. We touched on that. Yeah. Smug, let's, you're, you're going to love. I'm going to love this, right? All right. Well, let's get into this interview. Let's hear it. Well, it's super pack day here on Ruthless, and so we've got to go to our house counterparts, and boy, do these guys do just a whale of a job in 2020. Dan Constant, the president of uh, CLF and American Action Network. Sir, thank you for joining us. It's an honor and a pleasure. Man, I, there's one other thing that we need to cover off the top before we get into the serious business. You actually uh, are also someone who employs Foldy. <laughs> Top minion, uh, Twitter wonderkin, Matthew Foldy. He is, boy. he is something. So, <laughs> you know, Foldy's great. Uh, he is a joy to have in the office. Um, I will put aside his costume choices, which he calls clothing for a second. Um, he is he is really something. So, uh, Josh, you've been in our office. I mean, our office is it's very professional, DC. Um, you know, almost sterile looking. Um, and then you get to fold these uh, little sphere, his, his desk. Um, he's got, I mean, it, it basically looks like a bombed out dorm room. Um, boxes of various kinds of um, animal crackers and uh, oh. fish and such all over the place. Um, and then he's got like 14 bottles of sriracha. <laughs> Gross. Foldy, I mean, Foldy's a vegan, uh, so I guess if you're a vegan, you don't like food, so you have to just douse it in sriracha. Um, I, it, it's, it I is, mean, that sounds absolutely horrible. Yeah, um, there have been some staff complaints along the way. Um, he's had to clean up a couple times. Um, I'll tell you, he today um, we had a Zoom where he, he was wearing a shirt of cats, um, and I asked him if it was, um, you know, are, are you wearing pajamas? Cause it's, it's kind of strange to have someone in their twenties wearing pajamas. Um, and, and it, he actually informed me that it was a whole outfit. He had pants and a sport coat to go with it. <laughs> I mean, this guy, this guy's unbelievable. Well, I mean, I hope he puts in more work for you, Dan, than he does for smug because frankly, a couple of weeks back, he almost let smug die of, of the Rona. We all suspect. I did hear about this. Um, no, he really, he did a great job for us. He worked all hours of the day, um, kept us very apprised of, of the workings of Twitter um, and of, of Minion World, of course. Um, but no, he, he, he's great. He did very well. I will say he is, he is made for the coronavirus Zoom world. Um, if you can have Foldy working for you, but working from a remote location, that is an ideal setup. That's the good setup. All right. All right. Well, you've survived with Foldy. We appreciate your continued employment of Foldy. Uh, you know, he's, he's can do outdo his, uh, e-boy things while we, we focus on business here for a minute. I want to get into the house races in 2020, but I think an important preface of this is the media and the punditry were so bad that 
they basically just bypassed your whole operation altogether, right? They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, House expanded majority, Nancy Pelosi, she's great. Uh, let's focus on trying to ensure that the Senate is, is in jeopardy. And like nobody even came back to it, right? Like I, I did, you know, part of what I do is presentations to groups and, and companies and whatnot. And they're like, you know, give us the lay of the land. And I'll start in on the House. And they're like, no, no, just focus on the Senate. That's basically because the media had just informed everyone that there wasn't going to be any contested House races and Republicans were just going to lose. But somehow amidst all of that, you guys went to work, figured out how to work seamlessly with the Congressional Committee, which I might add is no small feat. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but you, you kicked ass everywhere. I mean... Did you know that this was coming? That everybody was going to have egg on their face? Well, we, we certainly proved some of the paywall prognosticators wrong. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, and the, the 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 shame of it during the cycle was that you know there were so many good candidates, and they were just dismissed out of hand. That well, yeah, I mean, that's nice. You're talking about these offensive races, but what about? you know, the, the 25 members of Congress that uh, are Republican that are about to lose. Um, look, I mean, ultimately, um, it, it was it was a great night and it continues to be, although we, we still have um, two races that are coming in focus. Uh, one, um, we should have more insight today in New York where we lead by 12 votes. That's um, insane. Uh, and another in Iowa, where Marinette Miller Meeks has won, where the vote's been certified, and where Democrats are now talking about stealing the election. Um, so, House Republicans at this point have picked up 15 seats. Of those 15 seats, uh, 14 of them are represented by a woman or a minority. In one election, we have fundamentally remade. The, the look of the House Republican Conference. Um, and, and I think, I mean, look, a lot of people deserve credit for the strong recruits this cycle. Um, it, it ultimately began with Leader McCarthy, um, and he made it very clear to the entire party that you just can't run the same candidates as usual and expect a different result. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, you need candidates that reflect America and their districts. And, and I think setting that tone from the top was critical. Um, clearly, you know, the, the NRCC did, did a great job on recruitment. Uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik also uh, instrumental with a number of candidates. Um, and, and there's a lot of people uh, that deserve um, the credit here. But that was, you know, that was a initial very important building block for us that we knew we needed to get recruitment um, to a better spot and and we did um, I mean the other things that really jump out to me here uh, the difference in message this cycle was was wild in that you know Democrats didn't say anything but Donald Trump and pre-existing condition right. And, you know, it turns out those are two motivating things for Democrats. Um, And you know what? They were already baked in with the electorate. And, I mean, they looked at 2018 and said, hey, let's just rinse and repeat. Um, And and it it didn't work for them. And, you know, you look at our messaging, um, you know, we – 
every single ad we had outside of one or two instances where there was personal opposition research that was just so juicy mm-hmm. and, and devastating that you, you had to go with that. Um, everything else touched people's economic livelihoods. How are we making your life better? And how is a Democrat going to make your economic well-being worse? Or two, uh, public safety, defund mm-hmm. the police. Um, Huge. And, yeah, it was. And, you know, I mean, we, we utilized defund the police in, in two ways. Some of it was um, in, it, it was a cultural fight, you know, um, the, the same way that, that the Trump campaign or the, the national message. Um, we used it to great effect in, in like New York 11 and, and a couple other places. That's Max Rose and yep. some other districts like that. But, but defund the police, we really moved into a public safety issue in the suburbs mm-hmm. and was, you know, what do smaller police budgets mean for you and your family? And it turns out like that, that was actually a very concerning thing to voters. Um, and the other side was just saying, you know, Trump and, and healthcare and, and, yeah. and, Trump. And, and, and coronavirus right till, down to the very end. I mean, one of the things I thought was so interesting about the way that Democrats, House Democrats prosecuted their messaging down the stretch was, you had all these states that had various versions of early voting or mail-in voting, and they closed the election almost exclusively talking about coronavirus and the dangers of coronavirus and your inability to leave the House and how Republicans had basically messed all this up, while Republicans are talking about the economy and getting going and everything else. And they're doing it to a, sec- a section of voters that had self-selected out of the coronavirus because they were voting on election day. You know, it's like... Huh? <laughs> it, 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 it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, they, the, the you know, meanwhile, at, at a time where there is great economic uncertainty um, and, and people are genuinely concerned about where this economy goes and how they move forward, the Democrats' message literally entirely bypasses how to grow the economy. Yeah. There's no attention paid. It's, I think it's a dirty word in democratic circles to talk about how you should safely have people re-entering the economic work, workforce. Totally. How do we talk about this when, when everyone needs to be home at all costs at every moment? You know, I mean, the hidden little secret there is that they kind of got a pretty good worldview, right? I mean, they were living in the middle of the coronavirus with everybody locked down. And they're like, okay, so let me get this straight. I can tell you when you go to work, what you can do, whether it's essential or not, I send you an allowance essentially every month, right? And then I can tell you when you can come out. I mean, that's basically a democratic worldview in and of itself, right? So they're like, what's wrong with this? Yeah, <laughs> it was all working great in their view. Um, but they, man, they were in for a shock. Uh, was, were there a couple of districts in particular where you felt like Democrats just totally missed their mark, either by bad recruiting or just continuing to pile cash into places that you just you knew they weren't going to win? Um, well, we had a lot of close races late, so in hindsight, I think it's easy to say, "Oh, wow, they got blown out here." Um, many of the races we had both on the offensive side, as well as there were some big defensive wins for us. Um, you know, these races were, were pretty, were, were pretty close. Um, at least in our, our polling, 
um, modeling and, and, you know, in the spending side too. Um, the, the ones that, that stand out to me, I mean, probably the best race of the cycle, uh, well, probably the best race of the cycle in our view was helping elect Nicole Maliotakis and beating Max Rose. So <laughs> Max Rose as the minions um, and, and many on Twitter uh, and in politics know is just cocky, indignant, um, his, his shtick is entertaining for like 12 minutes and then, it, uh, it wears thin. Um, <laughs> it does. It and does. he's held up as the example of the member doing everything right. He wasn't beatable. Um, you know, we might as well write, uh, Molly Otakis off early and she was an early recruit. Um, uh, and, and then for a long time, uh, the media was, um, was negative on this. So ultimately, um, Democrats spent $13 million on TV to protect Rose. We spent 5 million and, and we just crushed them. Uh, <laughs> Rose. So we had former cops on camera talking about how Max Rose abandoned the police and these cops were, were colorful, to say the least. I mean, it's okay. the Staten Island. Yeah. Um, Dave Sackett, not to throw him up under the butt. Well, not throw him. Dave Sackett uh, watched the ad and said, this will either win you the race or it will be an audition for Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I think I get the context. I can see it yeah. now. Yeah. So, you know, and, and we just... We, we broke his brand in all we did. We, we said this message over and over again for two and a half months. We end up breaking his brand um, and his will, frankly, to such a degree that a week before the election, there was a local news organization filming Max Rose outside a supermarket. And he ended up getting a, in a fight and... <laughs> off a constituent who walked up to him and said, I saw that you defunded the police. <laughs> um, so there's no win that's more satisfying than the candidate that ultimately gets into a fight with a constituent over what you've ever, what you've branded them as. <laughs> it, it, was, it was amazing. Um, and in perfect form, he's now trying to run for mayor as a woke leftist. Oh, perfect. So he is what you said he was. It, we, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Dan. I think I think Democrats knew they were going to lose in New Mexico, um, and and we had we had really broken Sochi Torres Small's credibility. Um, meanwhile, she had just uh, obscene amounts of money, <laughs> so it it really required us to continue to double and triple down. Um, but I think they they probably knew a little bit that they were going to lose. But but I think most honestly, I think their mindset was mostly that that they were going to win absolutely everything. So you think uh, that they they just basically had bad information, right? Because from the outside looking in, it, they never gave any indication that they thought they were going to be in any trouble here, like none. They were projecting double digit gains. Unbelievable. I mean, it, it, what do you do if you come up? I mean, look, we've won, we've lost. I've been on, you know, different sides of that over the years. But 
I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I'm like, you know what? I think we're going to pick up a whole ton of seats and you end up losing a whole ton. Like that, you're just not good, right? I mean, that's just terrible. They, I mean, they had a, a uh, arguably lazy strategy yeah. and they executed it, um, you know, with, with total assurance and it, it didn't work. Um, mm. And well, look, we, I mean, some of some of our polling was was uh, certainly painted a grim, a more grim picture in certain districts, um, uh, but but ultimately where where it succeeded for us was that it showed paths to victory in the races that we ultimately won, and that was why we kept doubling and tripling down, mm-hmm. and you know we were laughed off. Look in the last um, couple weeks of the election. We put obviously we, we were continuing to to put millions into to many of these races. Ultimately, I mean, CLF spent one hundred sixty five million dollars this cycle. So we were everywhere, um, but in the final couple weeks of the election, we doubled down in in Iowa one with Ashley Hinson, um, and in South Carolina one with Nancy Mace, where the prognosticators, uh, I think, by the end didn't even have those in in toss ups. <laughs> Um, and no one thought we had a chance. These are great candidates. They were running good races. Um, we saw pass to victory, um, you know, and, and ultimately, um, you know, it's the sort of the value of seeing these races through. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think you guys did better than, you know, basically anybody's done before is work well together. And, you know, for those of us who've been in this ball game for a long time, the relationships between committees outside and inside house senate rnc i mean that can be tenuous right everybody's sort of arguing over their own little uh bit of the turf but ultimately they can all be a perfect complement if they come together and we've had you know various stages of of that working out or not working out over the years but i thought you guys did particularly on the house side as good a job as it's ever been done working collaboratively and making sure that basically everybody's boat was getting lifted by the environment. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I mean, that was a big focus this cycle. Um, I will say, I mean, the the NRCC were great um, unofficial non partners uh, right. legally, right. Um, uh, and it looked Parker was was tremendous um, on on her end uh, and and the whole team. Um, and the places that they needed to run um, that we could have no involvement in were, were run tremendously. And, and I think this was more about, you know, when, when the goal is uh, trying to get to victory and you have, you've got shared, shared values, shared goals, you make it about the broader effort, um, and about you know organizations, it's you get to a place that that works. Um, and and ultimately, you know, um, we didn't know um, we we really didn't face any of the like personality conflicts that that happen sometimes um, with committees. That's and- incredible. I mean, that's that's you, you know you're you're being modest about it, but it, you know. It, for our listeners, the way this operates, these committees are jam full of competitive people. You wouldn't be doing this for a living if you weren't incredibly competitive. And what that comes is a certain sort of 
type A personality. And what frequently happens in very difficult uh, cycles like this one is you end up, and you guys know this because you see it in the news, they love nothing more than to report sort of intercommittee strife and this person saying this person sucks and, and everything else. And you guys just avoided it entirely. So look, my hat's off to you, Dan and your team. You did it the right way. You guys killed it, exceeded everybody's expectations. Are you going to finish the job? Are you sticking around in 2022 and finish the job? I am. Yes. That's excellent. Uh, I am. Thank you. I, I want to do our part in winning back the house, um, making uh, Kevin McCarthy the next Speaker of the House, Steve Scalise the next Majority Leader of the House. Um, it's, it's going to, to happen, uh, but there is a lot to, to get done. That's great. That's great. Well, one of the really good guys in politics, Dan Constant, I've got three questions for you that I ask everybody on our way out here. The first one is your last meal on earth. What is it? Cool. So I'm an insufferable foodie. So this is a very complicated yes. question for me. Waiting for somebody like that. Um, okay. So if we're talking last meal on earth, yeah. we're talking about it has to be delicious, but it has to be comforting too. That's right. There's so, many aspects of it. Delicious and comforting. Uh, that leads me towards like a red sauce Italian joint. Oh, I like it. I a like it. Maize, you know, maybe a little chicken parm. Um, uh-huh. uh, but something that is comforting, but you're like, oh, that's just, that is delicious. Yeah. It, um, perfect. That's really good. That's a good, that might be our best answer yet because it's, it shows a level of thoughtfulness, Dan, that uh, most sort of blow through. Um, <laughs> I just can't stop winning, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two, if you weren't in politics, if you were not involved in politics, what would you be doing with your life? Um, either a, a, a lawyer or a golf caddy. Um, one of the two. Uh, no, I, I almost certainly would have gone to law school. Uh, I don't know if I would have ended up um, practicing, but, but almost certainly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Third, this one's really important. It goes to the core of you. What motivates, Dan, what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Absolutely the agony of defeat. (laughs) I hate losing. Oh, it keeps me up at night. I do not like it. Um, Makes me anxious. Uh, so no, I, I, I don't like losing. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. There seems to be a common refrain amongst political operatives too. I, I gotta tell you, especially good ones like you, Dan, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I'm super glad that you're sticking around at CLF for the next cycle. I know you guys are going to get it done. And for all of our listeners, we really appreciate the effort you and your team put in on a day in and day out. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great to be on. Outstanding. Yeah. No, that's a lineup. That's, 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 we got a double, that's some good content, folks. I mean, you guys are getting, this is going to be, boy, we're, what an hour. <laughs> what I mean, an hour. It's and a, I, feel, yeah. I feel like, I feel like I go another hour. I've got another bourbon that I'm about to pour here. I'm ready to go. Right. That's a, that's an action packed episode right there. I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, that's one of the best ones we've got so far. Totally. Well, Smug, we're, we're, we have a couple of promises we need to fulfill to, the minions in the next couple of episodes. The first is a Christmas list, which we're working on folks. The reason we haven't done this yet is that we're taking very seriously. Yeah. We need to, we're going to have really good gift ideas, folks. When, you know, when the minions want something, we do not half ass it. Right. 
Right. So we've got that. We may do it Thursday. We may do it next Monday. We'll have it to you. Uh, uh, but we got a lot of new, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. By the minute, right? It, it, the, the news cycle never ends. Totally. Um, but folks, stay locked here to actually get the real news and not listen to the mainstream media's gaslighting. Um, so until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. Stay ruthless. We'll see you Thursday.